The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hello, very good morning. You're watching Scorebox. This well, it was a historic move yesterday on these markets. Karen Cho and myself, Steve Sedgwick, will try and dissect some of this. Try to make a little bit of sense out of these extraordinary market moves. Well, welcome to Scorebox. These are your headlines. U.S. stocks, as I mentioned, staging a massive comeback with the Dow swinging 1,500 points. Yes, 1,500 points, despite U.S. CPI coming in hotter than expected. Now, the OECD Secretary General Matthias Corman telling CNBC controlling the price pressures is critical. We've got to really ensure that inflation expectations remain anchored, which is why uh, the work that the Federal Reserve is doing is so important, and which is also why it's important that fiscal policy uh, is uh, operating hand-in-hand with monetary policy at this time. Chinese consumer prices also rising by the most in more than two years as the country's ruling party prepares to usher in a historic third term for President Xi Jinping. Standard Chartered Chairman Jose Vinal is telling our very own Jeff in Washington, D.C. that he expects an easing in COVID restrictions. Uh, what's going to happen with the zero COVID policy is the, is the, is the, is the key question. And I think that the, the intention was, according to all the information that one would gather, that after the party congress there would be a relaxation. Kwasi Kwarteng heads home early from IMF meetings amid speculation the government is considering yet another U-turn over its controversial budget. But the UK Chancellor backs his plan. Our position hasn't changed. I will come up uh, with the uh, medium-term fiscal plan on the 31st of October, as I uh, said earlier in the week, uh, and there'll be more detail there. And LVMH's Antoine Arnaud tells CNBC the luxury giant leader is not completely shielded from a potential recession, but stresses the stronger dollar is a boost for sales. The euro is weak and we had a lot of tourists here, uh, especially American tourists, uh, during this summer. So all in all, I'm not saying, uh, you know, life is uh, perfect, but uh, business-wise, we're quite confident for uh, the future. Sorry for you, Karen. I mean, on your side, you've got nothing but just space. <laughs> on my side, I've got reams of stats. What have they done? Come over. I can come just on. make we're it po- all up. We're post-COVID. Come on over. Come on. You can no, come no, over. No, no, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've had my big dose of COVID already this year. Look, um, I- I'm going to go through this market very quickly, um, and we're going to talk about um, the CPI figures. I think they're going to roll the prompt up to where it should be as well in a few moments' time. Um, but- <laughs> Thank you. Producers, yeah, we'll get there. Uh, but but I'll, I'll run through this because I, I think I want to get through a lot of lazy assumptions in a few moments' time and actually have a proper chat with Karen. But I will tell you first about what happened with U.S. consumer prices because, unlike Karen, I have lots of stats on the wall to talk you through. So the U.S. consumer prices remaining stubbornly high in September. Headline inflation rising 0.4% versus the previous month, whilst the core... Yeah, he's stripping out food and energy, because we don't need food and energy, do we? I know, I never quite worked that one out. Core rose 0.6%. Surging prices, let's keep going with the prompt, thank you. Surging prices are fueling expectations. The Federal Reserve will deliver its fourth 75 basis point interest rate hike 
next month, with traders now pricing in a 98% chance. Now, these are the US markets. Are you sure you don't want to come over? No, I've got some over here. It's okay. Okay, all right. Fair <laughs> enough. Well, you haven't yet. Um, and with this lot, you never know if you're going to get them. Uh, <laughs> it's Friday. 2.8% higher on the Dow. Uh, it had a high in session with a 30,100 and I think 68. So from trough to peak, it was 1,500. In fact, we've got the Dow session. Should we show that? It's uh, a very big session. 1,500 points as well. There you go. You can see... Uh, from the lows to the highs there as well. Look, I, I, I'm just going to go through this quickly, Karen. I know you've got a lot of adventures board as well. I have spoken to people. I have asked the question. I have looked at all the CNBC anchors and reporters who are asking the question. And I've gone beyond that as well. And I think there are a lot of lazy assumptions out there and filling in the gaps backward about why we rallied yesterday. Because everyone wants to know why we rallied considering the market plummeted after that hot CPI. And I think everyone is trying to say, well, we think here is going to rally. Of course we did. Because uh, the rationale is uh, the headline trajectory is down. Oh, the short sellers were unwinding. Actually, the headline figure, second quarter on third quarter, actually diminished somewhat. Lots of people searching for the bottom, searching for peak inflation. Oh, it was the algos. It was computerized trading. Oh, you know, it's because of the lack of liquidity out there, don't you? No short sellers left. No one else left to sell. Uh, and no new bad news on inflation. It was kind of what we knew. I think people are desperately filling in the gaps backwards. And actually, many people haven't actually actually found the real reason why we rallied. Someone out there knows why we rallied, but I think at the end of the day, it might be a combination of factors and could still be, and I don't know, but I just want to warn people, I think it could still be a bear market rally because a lot of the factors that we were concerned about before the data are mm. still there now. And number one, is anyone surprised about the amount of intraday volatility we had yesterday? I mean, we've been in a volatile environment for a long period of time, and just because we had the biggest swing intraday that we've seen doesn't really tell us anything different to what we've seen really since the beginning of the pandemic and those were the, some of the comparisons that were drawn really that early pandemic trading environment it stepped up a little bit from what we've had over the course of this year again but it's investors saying I do not know which way to jump and if you think about the data we kept talking about it for really from Monday when did we start talking about data point from as early as Monday and we spoke about all week how significant it was so I think a lot of positioning did go on and the market thinking well we're going to peel back on the headline we're going to heat up on the core but we didn't peel back as much as we thought on the headline the core was still hot so I think the instant reaction and a lot of short traders I think were really taking over the early part of the action on the markets the markets were gripped by that trading action and there was this instant sell because of that headline miss effectively but I think after that investors then got back to the usual turmoil of do I buy do I sell and it does tell us to an extent that there's going to be some violent action down the track when there's upside as well the market doesn't want to miss out so I think uh, we saw a lot in that trading day that uh, you could pick I out think, and, and just put pieces on. I think actually that's the one thing I did mention as well, which is FOMO. And I think mm. you're spot on there. Absolutely. I want to take you to Treasury markets, and uh, I do have some numbers here, apparently. Here we go, Treasuries. The 30-year, 3.91 we were trading, 3.94 on the 10-year note, uh, the yield, and the two-year, the short end, 4.45. So we did see some movement. Again, I think the market is wondering what we've got in terms of the interest rate hikes yet to come. 75 basis points in as a done deal next time round in November, but then potentially another 75 basis points for December. The market now talking about potential for a 5% terminal level, up from about 
just over four and a half percent. So there's been a little bit of movement around the bond market. But again, is that the ideal scenario? I think markets are still churning around just what we're going to see from the Fed. And just how quickly that inflation number will eventually come down to the Asian markets. Uh, the green that we saw on the U.S. boards, very much triggering green across these markets as well. 3.3 on the Japanese stock market. Hong Kong bouncing three and a half percent. Don't forget there's been a lot of pain points across these markets too in recent days. The extra layer on top for some of those markets from Tokyo to Hong Kong really has been around the chip curbs of the changes from the Biden administration to restrict some of these chips going towards the Chinese military. Shanghai bouncing. Uh, don't forget we are just on the eve of this big party Congress that is uh, expecting to see uh, President Xi's power just reconfirmed at this stage. 1.6 up though on the stock market leading up to that meeting over the weekend. 1.7 on the Australian market. To the futures stateside, the indications of what we're going to see later on today. And I think that's key if you see a session that's reinforced after six straight sessions to the downside. It looks as though we will continue this journey into the green. Fairly solid features this morning to the upside. So the OECD Secretary General Matthias Cormann says there is a risk that global inflation pressures are becoming more pervasive. Now speaking to our very own Jeff on the sidelines of the IMF annual meeting in D.C., Corman said it was important to ensure that central banks around the world, including the Federal Reserve, are doing what they can to restore stability in the pricing environment. Inflation uh, in the U.S. and uh, around the world is uh, you know, clearly very high. It's uh, getting more broad based uh, and we also know why. I mean, we've had uh, you know, the impact of Russia's war of aggression against Ukraine, which came on top of uh, the uh, pandemic uh, and, and the response to the pandemic with uh, significant levels of necessary but never, nevertheless uh, very high uh, fiscal and monetary policy support with the supply uh, bottlenecks uh, that of course caused further uh, pressures in the context of very rapidly rising uh, a very rapidly rising recovery in demand with supply not being able to uh, keep up so uh, I mean the good news is that in the US I mean the Federal Reserve is fully committed uh, to do what needs to be done uh, to restore price stability to get inflation uh, back under control but uh, you know I mean this is this is going to take a little while. One of the points that you made I think was that you see actually underlying inflationary pressures as being quite stubborn at this point. What are you seeing then that is convincing you that it is going to be harder to eradicate these pressures? Well, it, it is becoming more broad-based and the risk is when it gets uh, more broad-based and it starts uh, to feed uh, into wage inflation and, and, and the like, it, it does become uh, more difficult to get the genie back into uh, the bottle. I mean, we've got to really ensure that inflation expectations remain anchored, which is why uh, the work that the Federal Reserve is doing is so important and which is also why it's important that fiscal policy uh, is uh, operating hand in hand with monetary policy at this time. The Standard Chartered Chairman Jose Vinales told Jeff that the latest US inflation data only reinforced the role of the Fed. It reinforces the determination with which the Fed is, is fighting inflation. So I think that uh, market expectations prior to these that rates could go in the state's official rates to 475 and then stay there throughout 2023, I think that they are only strengthened as a result of the data that we uh, knew today. Now, what this means for banks like us and others is that high rates uh, improve uh, net in interest margins and the longer they stay, the better. Of course, one needs to be careful also about the impact that rates have 
on uh, the creditworthiness of borrowers and on the economy. And that's something that needs to be taken into account in analysis. But overall, for banks, it's a positive. Banking heavyweights JP Morgan and Morgan Stanley, City and Wells Fargo will report third quarter figures before the bell today. Investment banking revenues will be in focus after JP Morgan President Daniel Pinto warned he expected a drop of between 45 to 50% for the period. Market volatility, growth concerns and the slowdown in deal making are set to weigh with Refinitiv data forecasting a sharp drop in profits. Octavio Morenzi joins us now, the CEO of Opimas. Thank you very much for joining us again. It's a headline act as we take a look at the bank earnings this week and been so many moving pieces. The amount of, uh, I think, leverage that some of the banks, the debt that they'd raised that they hadn't passed on through M&A that just didn't unfold. That was a big feature last time round. Just set the scene for the report cards this time round. Well, so I, I think for large banks that like JP Morgan have a large retail and commercial banking sector, we're going to see the revenues actually increase ever so slightly. So I think we're going to see sort of in, in the single digit increase in, the, in terms of the revenues. What JP Morgan has been doing, however, is basically saying we see storm clouds on the horizon. So we're going to set aside a whole bunch of money for reserves and that's going to de depress earnings. So I think with JP Morgan, we'll see the rather uh, paradoxical movement in the sense that revenues are going to go up. However, earnings are going to go down because they're putting money aside. I would say that JP Morgan did this very, very aggressively during the pandemic as well, set aside a lot of money to cover bad losses and loan losses that never actually materialized. And they did very well through that. Uh, so the question is, are they doing the same thing here? Are they putting aside reserve losses now for losses that will never materialize? Bear in mind, uh, delinquency rates on US loans at the moment are at historic lows or very close to historic lows. So the US consumer and US businesses are repaying their loans to their banks and there's no real problem there. But JP Morgan has made many comments about being concerned about the future. So they're going to put some money on the side. Yeah, what do you think the impact is going to be in the mortgage market for some of these lenders? Because don't forget, we've seen mortgage rates now two times the level they were a year ago. We've seen a little bit of strain in terms of mortgage applications. Just give us a sense as to whether you think that part of the market is going to show some strain and that will flow through to the banks. Oh, absolutely. So any bank that is heavily exposed to mortgages is going to suffer. So there's going to be a big, big decline there in terms of number of mortgage applications. Obviously, mortgage refinancings completely disappear in an environment where interest rates are going up. <clears throat> So uh, any bank that has a big exposure to mortgages is going to suffer. JP Morgan certainly is one of the banks that is very active in the mortgage space, but it's a limited part of its business overall. There's other banks like Wells Fargo who are much, much more exposed to mortgages who are really going to suffer as a result of that business declining. So yes, that's going to look bad. Mortgage rates are going up. So far, the housing market has held up more or less in terms of pricing, but it looks like that's going to start to teeter as well in certain regions in the US are starting to come down as well. So we haven't got a full-blown housing crisis yet, but it doesn't look like we're far away. So a doubling or more than doubling in terms of the mortgage rates is going to have a very negative impact eventually on that market as well. Octavio, very good morning to you, sir. Look, and we're showing a, a board next to you, an offset that shows big declines for most of the US uh, banks so far this year, in line with the broader market and a bit worse in some cases as well. Are the US banks, despite trading at a massive premium to the European banks, are the US banks good value at this stage of the cycle, given how they've traded historically as well? I, I want a bit of insight on that, possibly. 
Well, I think they went through the pandemic and did much, much better than anyone really expected. So they just swimmingly went through that and and did phenomenally well, particularly on the investment banking side and the trading side. And that's uh, that side has slowed down quite considerably. Certainly, in investment banking. You were talking about investment banking revenues being down 40, 45 percent. Uh, if you look at the equity side of investment banking, that's even worse. However, the areas that has done quite well or held up reasonably well is the whole trading side of things. And of course, this kind of volatility that we see in the market is actually quite beneficial for the sales and trading side of things. And that's true on the equity side and on the fixed income side. So despite the fact that there's lower volumes overall slightly, the volatility up and down creates trading opportunities for these banks on their market-making desks, on the proprietary trading desks that they take advantage of. So they are well-positioned to take advantage of those movements overall. So is our is the US banking sector really now a good buy? I think it looks pretty decent. It looks fairly valued. And I don't expect things to be that bad overall for the US banking sector. I expect the set of earnings to be pretty decent overall. A bit of growth on the, on the top side, some reduction on the bottom side. Um, it, for someone like Morgan Stanley, who's also reporting today, uh, a bit more mitigated in the sense that they're going to struggle to get top-line revenue growth and probably will decline a bit, but nothing catastrophic. So things look pretty good overall. And I think this hammering that US bank stocks have received over the course of the past year has been a bit exaggerated and a bit overblown. If you look at the pr- price earnings multiples of the banks, they're at very, very low levels indeed, very surprisingly low. Yeah, I like, I like the price to book, as you know, Octavia. Look, um, but when you compare those PEs and those price to books to the European peers, and that's why I just want to direct you briefly, if we can, as well. I know you're here to talk about US banks, but we do trade at premium. We've always traded at premium. In fact, we do on all US stocks anyway, uh, on a like-for-like basis, for a variety of, of depth of investor reasons as well as anything else as well. But would you prefer to buy, for instance, your average European bank at 0.6 times or your average US bank at 1 to 1.1 times as well, which is the kind of the rough differential we're talking about? Well, so I I would be far more interested in investing in US banks at this stage. And I I think there's going to be more resilience in terms of the earnings there. I think the recession that the US is moving into is likely to be shallower than we're going to see in Europe. What I'm really going to be concerned about in the European market is, yes, first of all, drying up in terms of deal activity on the investment banking side, but then also less volatility in the markets that we've seen in the US, and therefore less fewer trading possibilities there. And ultimately, I think the recession is going to be tougher in the European market, and therefore we're going to see higher delinquency rates on the loan portfolios. So I think I, the balance overall would lead me more to US bank stocks than European bank stocks at this stage in the game. Octavio, I'm sure there are going to be some questions from journalists about market dysfunction and how these banks feel about it. We know there are stress tests that have been crafted since the last financial crisis, but it's been pointed out that some of the metrics that have been used in those stress tests are very different to what we're seeing now in the current market with very high inflation. Just give us a sense as to whether you think there is some dysfunction that could catch up with some of them, these banks. Well, I mean, there's two questions there. One, one is the stress tests that the central banks put out sometimes uh, are not terribly realistic in terms of their scenarios. So they try to be, but uh, they get uh, left behind by changes in the markets quite, quite quickly. So you're right, they did not in their stress tests really have scenarios where interest rates were raising at this rate and there was this much inflation out there. So they did not really take that into account in many of the stress tests that the central banks put the banks through. So I, I don't know about market dysfunction overall. I mean, I think the market looks like it's pretty resilient overall. I'm not terribly concerned about that. I mean, it does make sense, of course, as interest rates get jacked up, that the markets get depressed and pushed down. I think it's absolutely logical. I wouldn't describe this as a dysfunction. So I think the bank's going to be okay on that front. But you're you're right to point out 
that the stress test did not really take into account scenarios like this. But that's asking the central bankers to sort of foresee the future. And I think they've proven time and time again they're not terribly good at doing that. Octavia, I'm glad you waited on that because it does raise the, the question, doesn't it? If the stress tests are not stressing some of the banks and we're going through uh, turbulent times, what do the banks actually look like? Uh, Octavia, thank you very much for joining us. Octavia Marenzi, CEO of OPMAS. Chinese consumer prices jumped at their fastest pace since April 2020 last month, rising 2.8% from a year earlier, driven by surging food costs. Emily joins us with more in the lead-up to the country's crucial party congress. Emily, uh, let me toss it over to you. It's a big moment for China. Just give us a sense as to some of the data that were crunching the backdrop. Yeah, that's right, uh, Karen. Uh, we are looking for a pair of uh, data points today. Uh, this data set coming out uh, from China includes the inflation reading as well as the latest trade numbers. Now, the latter we are still waiting for. And, of course, everybody is keen to know this zero-COVID policy that they have insisted that is sustainable and they're, they're going to be sticking to how that's impacting the economy. So this latest China inflation read growing its fastest pace in more than two years in September with CPI up 2.8%, and that comes in line with forecast producer prices ppi rising 0.9 percent and that's softening from the 2.3 percent advance in the prior month on the trade front export growth is expected to have slowed as overseas demand weakens imports to remain weak so that number has yet to come out and will break it as and when it crosses now these data sets come before sunday's opening of the 20th communist party congress the week-long once in five-year event will see 2300 party members at the great hall of the people and president xi jinping expected to be confirmed for a landmark third term, making him the most powerful Chinese leader since Mao Zedong. Xi is set to override the party's de facto retirement age of 68 and standard two-term limit. Xi will deliver a speech on Sunday, which could telegraph key policy priorities for the next five years. Markets are looking for any clues on whether and how China will exit its zero-COVID policy, manage the impact on its economy, and the rising tensions over Taiwan. Next week, we'll also get the latest reading on the Chinese economy, activity indicators for September, and Q3 GDP. That's the latest from here. Back to you guys in London. Emily, thank you very much for bringing us that report. Uh, for more on China's 20th Communist Party Congress and what to expect, as well as the names to keep an eye out for, check out CNBC.com. A standard chartered chairman, Jose Vinales, has told CNBC that the relaxation of zero COVID rules is crucial for China. What's going to happen with the zero COVID policy is the, is the, is the, is the key question. And I think that the, the intention was, according to all the information that one could gather, that after the party congress there would be a relaxation. Now the question is how gradual that relaxation is going to be. I think it will happen, but I think that the expectations are pushed into the future. I think that this is not as good as could be expected, but the fact, for example, that other markets like Hong Kong are going ahead with the, the opening up of the economy, I think it's important. One critical thing for Hong Kong is the integration, the economic integration with the Greater Bay Area. And I think that the Chinese authorities know how important it is, and this is something that will be pursued. But again, the timing of things may be, as I said, a little bit slower as a result of the health issues happening in China. Do you know the lovely thing about this show so far? 
We haven't mentioned the crisis in UK guilt, pensions, <laughs> politics, what have you. And, and as a proud Brit, it's been a nice 22 minutes, but I'm afraid we're going to be brought back down to earth by Jumana Pasecha, who's uh, joining us in a few moments' time. Yes, because coming up on the show, uh, flying but not rowing back. See what they did there? It's very good. Uh, UK Chancellor of the Exchequer, Kwasi Kwarteng, leaves the IMF meetings in Washington early but denies the government will U-turn yet again on its mini-budget. We'll get Jumana up. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Right, welcome back. UK Chancellor of the Exchequer, Kwasi Kwarteng. Can you hear the resignation in my voice? That's, that's the only resignation going on, I can assure you. Kwasi uh, Kwarteng returning home from the IMF meetings in Washington amid rising speculation. Yes, you guessed it. The government will reverse major elements of its flagship mini-budget after three weeks of market turmoil and multiple interventions from the Bank of England. Speaking in Washington, the IMF Managing Director, Kristalina Gorgieva, uh, called for coordination between Kwarteng and the Bank of England. Our message to everybody, not, not just to the UK, to everybody is at this time, fiscal policy should not undermine monetary policy because if it does it, then the task of monetary policy becomes only harder and it translates into the necessity for even further increase of rates and tightening uh, financial uh, conditions. So don't prolong the pain. Uh, make sure that actions are, are coherent and consistent. Before making his exit, that's from Washington rather than number 11 Downing Street, Kwarteng denied reports the government is considering another U-turn. My total focus, Faisal, is on delivering on the mini-budget and, in sure, in and making sure that we get growth back into our economy. That's the central prize. That's the main focus uh, of my job. And the reason why I'm here in Washington, the reason you're here, is because we've got IMF annuals and everybody is talking about the same problems. Everybody's talking about energy, everybody's talking about uh, inflation, and everybody is talking about how we can get growth back into the global economy. And the UK's pension funds approach a cliff edge, apparently, with the Bank of England's emergency £65 billion support scheme set to end later today. Jemina joins us. Jemina, you're not even supposed to be here. I'm what? not, no. So, should we tell a backstory? I don't think we're... So, the reason it's why you're... It's not the main you're... story today, but it's it a, is a very important you know, it just story. shows where this country's going at the moment. Right. Jemina, do you know this story? I don't know the full extent of it. Jemina is not supposed to be to here. She's not supposed to, to be there. She's supposed to be down at Threadneedle Street, freezing in the cold Big morning. destination A. At the Bank of England. I'm always there. Because the lovely Paul, who's your camera person today, your camera operator, couldn't get into London on time because there is a police roadblock to stop an Extinction Rebellion 
sit-in or whatever it is. Think it was eco warrior territory. I well, uh, Paul, Paul is not an eco warrior. I know that no, no, dearly. He's, he's a lovely he was lad. Trying to get through. <laughs> so, so just, just countries going to the dogs. So, so you're here rather than Fred Nieder Street because of an be extinction in... rebellion potential sit-in, which meant the police had a roadblock, which meant your camera operator couldn't get in. <laughs> yeah, basically. Anyway, it's lovely to see you. What's going on? Is not the main story today, me not being outside Well, yes, I think so. That's going right. Let me tell you why today is important, and I will tell you why today is also important. Once I head out to Threadneedle Street, I'm actually heading there. Yeah, this is this is a one-off. It's a one a one-time only special around the set. Okay, Bank of England. Yes. September 28th introduced this temporary bond buying scheme to help support the market. The market became very dysfunctional. The gilt market became very dysfunctional after the announcement of that mini budget. Remember, in the course of two days, we had this humongous sell-off in bond yields. They moved about 100 basis points wider. And at the time, the Bank of England thought, okay, well, we need to come in to bring some stability to this market because if we don't, it could be very disruptive for the asset managers and the institutions that are invested in that space, namely the LDI managers who manage pension fund assets. So they came out with this scheme September 28th. They said, look, we're going to buy up to five billion pounds of gilt today in the long part of the curve, 20 year plus, for a period of 13 days, so a potential envelope of 65 billion pounds. Here we are. It is the last day of the program, October 14th. In effect, they've actually only bought 17.8 billion pounds worth of bonds. We've got another session left today, but clearly they're not going to meet that full target of the 65 billion pounds. They always said from the very beginning that this was going to be a temporary measure brought in to help stabilize the market, to give the pension funds some time to really rebuild back their capital buffers and to reduce some of the leverage. So then the question going forward is, have they? Has this been enough time for the LDI to get uh, their house back in order again and I've spent a lot of the last couple of days speaking to the pension fund community and they tell me that they have taken advantage to the extent that they can they've tried to rebuild their buffers back they've had to do some asset sales um, they have reduced some of the leverage in their exposure building up buffers in case we do get a situation like this again um, but I think the bigger question here is what the government decides to do with the fiscal budget and you saw the biggest turnaround in yields of the last couple of weeks was after the government did its first U-turn on the high income tax threshold and yesterday on reports that there may be other reworkings in the budget also set to come as well. I think it's good to break out the various different parts of the trade going on in UK assets at this point and one very much being the cleanup in the pensions market, the other central bank intervention and more broadly the stability of the UK based on the political situation and I think here we need to talk about damage control. Mm -hmm. What policy is the right one for the government to come up with? Would a U-turn be enough? Would that be it? The market goes, okay, fine, we've tested it, they've come up, they've done a U-turn, okay, clean slate here, we can start again. But then there's also discussion about whether we see change down at um, Downing Street, mm -hmm. whether the so-called, what do they call it now, the moderate dream team, uh, a Rishi Sunak, Penny Mordant type of tie-up. So if we're already talking about the uh, rest of the Conservatives or some parts of the Conservatives talking about leadership change at this point after the torturous leadership journey that we've just been on. This does not silence some of the speculation and fears that will dominate the market, right? Mm, which is why October 31st is going to be such a crucial day because that is when we will get the next fiscal event. We should probably get probable, like actual detail about what they plan on doing with these public finances over the medium term. And then also don't forget Bank of England's money, monetary policy remit as well. We've been talking about their financial policy remit. They're set to actually start selling guilds 
from October the 31st. Questions as to whether they can actually go ahead and do that, given the disruption that we've seen over the last couple of weeks. And I think that's also going to be a telltale signal for the investor community as well. So many more questions. Um, hopefully we'll get to ask you those a little bit later on. And then if you're a lovely viewer, a nice viewer, and you are in that part of the city a little bit later on. Why don't you take, Shimon, a nice coffee and a croissant? Oh, that would be lovely. Not Paul the cameraman, because he's, he's ruined the, <laughs> the hits, but, but, but definitely, uh, and maybe George the producer. A pumpkin spice latte, maybe? Pumpkin. A macaroon, oh, maybe. is so that... Macaroons do you know how much Americans here? spend on pumpkin <laughs> spiced goods this time? I mean, it's, it's in the billions. I didn't realise it was quite so big. Them? No. Oh, I'm They're not a fan. The ones I've tried are just Latte, me? Are you oh, kidding? Goodness. English it's breakfast a, tea. It, it's not the delicate balance on the palate that one may seek from a certain <laughs> beverage. Definitely not. It's a little treat. Jamana rug up. We'll see you shortly from the Bank of England. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.